The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop trying to install Vista on that Commodore 64 and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 216 with guest Eric Sink, recorded live Thursday, February 1st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies, online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.datadynamics.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now the man who tried Mac OS once but didn't inhale, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here, as I am every week, with my friend Richard Campbell. Hi, Richard. Yes, sir. Here we are. Boy, Shows. this was a good week. It was a good week. Yeah. You know, this is the 216th show. No kidding. It's also about the near the anniversary of two years ago when I started doing the show with you. Yeah. Boy, it really took off after you got it. I don't know why, but uh, it must have been something I did. It must have been. Yeah. <laughs> it was all very just serendipitous. It just worked this way. Yeah. Good things are coming, folks. Um, we've been doing some business behind the scenes that means more shows and more good stuff for everybody um we don't have anything definite yet but uh stay tuned for that and i got some email richard that just made my week this is unbelievable this is from eric rangel or rangel sorry eric uh, r-a-n-g-e-l-l sorry if i mispronounced you uh hello carl my company tns media intelligence is using DNR TV to encourage employees to donate to our annual charity sponsorship with UNICEF to support children in Cambodia by providing medical and educational supplies. We have Friday lunch and learn sessions where people get pizza at 20th century prices, <laughs> plus an hour of training on a relevant topic from DNR TV. And their donation gives kids a chance to stay healthy and improve their lives. One of our developers is from Cambodia, and we are extremely lucky that he survived the horrific conditions there in the 1970s and found his way to America to become an expert .NET developer. Your show is now truly making a difference. Please pass this on to your listeners. Thanks, and keep up the excellent work. Eric Rangel, 
uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania. Eric, man, that just made my week. Wow. I had no idea that uh, that it could be used in such a great way. And if you haven't seen DNR TV by now, you're missing out on a lot of really good, free, you know, training quality content at uh, www.dnrtv.com. So, Richard, do you have something to share, too? Uh, a, that's a tough email to follow. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. we just did the show with Steve McConnell, and I was surprised at how strong the reaction was to it. So I picked one email out. Yeah, we and, were worried uh, that it was too long. Uh, yeah, we went really long on the show, and I had a great time talking to him. He's a I, fascinating man. I've read his stuff for years. I could have gone on forever. I'm really glad that the listeners uh, enjoyed it as much as we did. Yep. So here's one email I picked out. It's a bit of a long one. Okay. Hi, guys. I had a quick note. Funny how they, if you leave with a quick note, it never is a really a quick yeah, note. Right. About some software engineer undergrad programs you mentioned in show 215. Mm. The universities are not producing ready-made software engineers, but it's pretty damn close. Mm. But as with all universities, your mileage may vary as professors, schools, and learning paths all differ greatly. I'd suggest that an intelligent software engineer graduate with people skills could handle a role as a software manager or architect or system lead or fill in the 50,000 foot title variant here mm. within three years of graduation if they want to move there. And an interesting point there after three years, you got to get in the field and do yeah, the work. Got to get the experience. The topics of software process as a whole are covered and practiced fairly in depth and related to real world articles and situations. Pretty much every major software process is covered and the more mature ones practiced. But of course, knowing the process isn't helpful if you don't know the details of the steps in the process. Where I attended, the high-level processes were covered in the intro classes, then almost forgotten about while going in-depth into the usual comsci topics, then picked back up again after all the steps of the process have been covered and practiced. Yeah. Those steps usually being variants on identify, analyze, plan, develop, test, release, maintain. Basically, take all of the software engineering documentation generated in the last 40 years, pull out the main themes and major write-ups, and cram it into 24 classes to cover both learning and practicing. That situation is just something you can't get in the real world. When would you have time to practice both clean room and extreme programming? Yeah. Which are both very cool, but you're right. Odds are you only ever done one of them. I graduated from Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama, with a Bachelor of Software Engineering. Uh, Auburn University was one of those five schools that Steve mentioned in the show. Right. I can't remember if they were the first or not, but they were pretty close to it. And, and you know, as a, hmm? No, I was going to say, you know, Mark Dunn does quite a bit of training down there in Alabama. He's got good things to say about them. Great. And, a, and as a rarity, they actually put ComSci and software engineering into the College of Engineering rather than science and mathematics, hmm. which is, I think, where it should be. Hmm. It's an engineering discipline. Right. I got a bit of a start in the software industry by doing small projects for various clients while in high school. Then two years into my degree, I got a steady job as a software engineer. With this fortunate situation, I got the perspective on how effective the classes and curriculum were re representing the real world. At Auburn University, at least 50% of it was applicable and realistic, and 50% of it purely academic. The only major flaw I found was the lack of communication of exactly why you were learning something. The curriculum yeah. does a good job at taking the student through the fairly stereotypical path of the better tech industries, but starting with the focus on where they want to end up so it's focused. 
for lack of a good metaphor other than the long screwdriver to city one. Do I know that metaphor? No. I Learn low-level <laughs> basics. Apply basics until you dig a hole. Learn higher-level basics. Apply those until you dig a hole. Repeat until you've gotten into the deepest hole you've ever seen. This guy knows a lot about software. <laughs> I think he's worked pretty hard at it. Yeah. Now, as for universities outputting good technical programmers, that's a completely different topic that I'd rather not get into. Nice. <laughs> he's sparing us those details. Yeah. So there you go. And I've been listening to .NET Rocks for one and a half to two years now. Jason McDonald. Awesome, Jason. Thank you. And uh, both of you guys will get your share of swag, that's for sure. In fact, uh, we're offering uh, a piece of swag to everyone who donated at uh, the Westchester company that uh, is doing the UNICEF donation thing. That's great. Great idea. Yeah. And uh, we have some other interesting things to talk about, a couple of things. Let me say that again. And we have a couple other quick announcements. One is that Mix07 is right around the corner. Uh, visit Mix.com or Mix07.com will get you there. And uh, this is a conference Microsoft is hosting. It's not just all about Microsoft technology. It's really about uh, you know Web 2.0 in general. And uh, if you're any kind of you know forward-looking, forward-thinking person, you might want to check it out. It's a 72-hour conversation, April 30th to May 2nd, at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. And uh, the keynote speakers are going to include uh, are going to be Ray Ozzy, who's now the chief software architect at Microsoft, and our friend Scott Guthrie, general manager, general manager at Microsoft Corporation. Did he get a new title? Sounds like it. That's pretty serious. But when you invent ASP.net, you tend you to deserve get, a promotion. Yeah, you tend to get noticed <laughs> at the firm. <laughs> Man, yeah. I, I He's going to be present someday. Watch someday. out, Ray. Yeah, look out, Ray. <laughs> you better watch your back. Scott is the man. <laughs> That's right. Um, and for that alone, it's well worth going out to Vegas and yeah. uh, and having a listen. And Microsoft's doing a really good job of reaching out to the web community as a whole so the talks are not that Microsoft-centric, really. There's all kinds of different things going on there. However, we know, and we don't know what it is, but we know from the RD alias that there's going to be a major, majorly cool announcement at Mix that nobody knows about. It's like a big surprise, right? Yeah. We have no, we have honestly, don't, don't ask us. Is. Don't ask us because we don't know. No idea. They're not even telling the RDs. This is how <laughs> incredibly, you know, clandestine it is. So uh, Mix is going to be good. Um, the other thing is that our friend Greg Brill down in New York City is still uh, hiring people from the .NET Rocks listener base. Um, he's uh, if, you, if you haven't been paying attention to that, go to shrinkster.com slash KH6. This is where Nick Landry works and uh, a whole bunch of other people that we know have jumped on board. And basically, if you're young and energetic and you want to go live rent-free in New York City for a year... Go do this, man. You'll never have a better opportunity. This Greg Brill is an awesome guy. He's funny. The guy writes songs. Did you know this? He no, like, I didn't. plays guitar, he sings, and he when he <laughs> reminds me of somebody I know. Yeah, I know. This is why I get along with him. I'm just like a Jewish version of me, right? <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. So he's just like you, only more guilt. I like soup, but I also like this. So we go down there. He he pulls out a guitar, he starts singing me, you know, like a thank you for letting me be on dot net rocks, Carl. He's like singing me this tune. He's got like a diner set up for the kitchen in the company. Just like a fun place to work. 
Definitely cool. Uh, so again, the deal is if you're a very decent developer, you got good people skills, you're young, you're energetic, fairly unattached, you can live anywhere in the world, of course, and come to New York for a year. New York City, man, that's where it's all happening. You bet. Shrinkster.com KH6. Okay, let's uh, bring on our guest, Richard. Eric Sink graduated in 1990 from the University of Illinois with a degree in computer science. After living for a year in Spain, he spent five years at Spyglass, where he led the group that developed the web browser, later to become known as Internet Explorer. In 1997, Eric left Spyglass and founded Source Gear which is now a leading vendor of version control tools. In 2002, SourceGear was honored by Inc. Magazine, that's I-N-C Magazine, as one of the 500 fastest growing private companies in America. Would you please welcome the man who's not a software legend, Eric Sink. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just, I love notalegend.com. What a great site. We had a ball with that. It, you know, it was one of those things we put together sort of uh, on a whim at the last minute, um, and uh, I was just glad it went over well. And in fact, I was a little worried at first that we were going to just tick off all the actual legends and the people who did that campaign, but they all thought it was a riot. Wait, so. uh, yeah, every time every time I see Rocky Laka, I say, "Oh my God, it's the software legend <laughs> Rocky Laka." I think they know it's just as ridiculous as. <laughs> It really is. Yeah, they know. <laughs> it was a marketing campaign. The website is now gone for a reason. You know, Juval, Lowy and I are sort of friends, so we, you know, we, we work together quite a bit at Dev Connections, and we see each other all the time. And uh, we've actually been partnering on training, you know, since way back when. So we, you know, we're friends. And uh, I had him on .NET Rocks. Oh, I don't know. It was a year and a half ago. He he comes on periodically. And uh, the first question out of my mouth was, so why isn't, say, Dan Appleman a software legend? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Because he didn't have a book out at the time. Yeah, that's basically the answer. And he knows it, so. And then there's the whole story of the cardboard cutouts. You know that story? Oh, yeah. We, we, in fact, we did a card, uh, did a cutout for, uh, for the spoof. (laughs) Did you really? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we we enrolled the spoof at a tra- at a uh, Gnomedex. I was oh, one of the speakers at Gnomedex that year, so we showed up with the cardboard cutout. It looks exactly like you know the Chris Sells cutout. You know, not a legend at the bottom and everything. <laughs> the problem is now you know we still have that cutout around the office, and so it shows up in places. <laughs> Like every time we get a new employee, it usually gets stuck in their office to welcome them on their first day and you know, stuff <laughs> That's like that. Great. It's just kind of nasty. So you obviously have a good sense of humor, and you're quite a prolific blogger as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing that we haven't had you on the show before because you seem like the perfect .NET Rocks guest. I mean, you sort of have this renaissance man thing about you where you've developed all these great pieces of software. Other people have developed great pieces of software, but... And, you know, unlike most people, you've actually published it, you know, gotten it out there. Had people buy it from you? Oh, we've had a few. It's, uh, you know, we've had some dud products too, but, you know, in general, things have gone fairly well for us. And uh, blogging has basically been my opportunity to, to find out that I actually like to write. I, I never did before, so. <laughs> and write you do. I mean, your latest post is a tome, <laughs> if I may say so. That's not a derogatory term, folks. 
uh, that's Baptists not a pejorative. And boundaries. The one oh, that yeah. starts off with a joke, oh, which, yeah, which the, is yeah, sure yeah. to filter out the people that you don't want to read at your blog anyway. So <laughs> that's right. So, so you enjoy writing. And yeah, I do. Although, it, you know, writing's funny. It's, sometimes I sit down to write something I think it's going to be great, and I craft it, and I look at it, and I stand back and say, this is awesome, and I publish it, and everyone kind of yawns. And then some days I come in, and I, I sit down, and I open my word processor, and I throw a tantrum, and everybody loves it. So, <laughs> you know, hey, I have no ability to predict what readers want to read and, and what they don't, but I just keep writing. I see the sad tale of technology dependence as a, one of those rants. Yeah, that that was a bad day for me. I just figured I'd <laughs> take it out on my readers, and it worked out fine. You started off by planing your fingertip. Yeah, that's usually a bad start to a day. Yeah, that, that's true. Ouch. So would you agree that a lot of your writing sort of has the theme of getting developers to think more uh, business-wise about the marketing side of software? Oh, yeah. That's definitely been a big theme of mine. Um, I think it's just because it's the transition I've made. You know, I went from hardcore geek to um, to business guy, marketing guy. And uh, I think it's an important transition for, for people to be able to make. I, partly it's because, you know, in software companies, I you know, you open the door, so I'm going to preach from in here. No, sure. In software companies... By and large, if you've got non-technical people making business decisions, they're screwing it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. You don't have to tell me twice. I mean, the fact of the matter is so many decisions require some level of technical clue in order to make them correctly. Right. Otherwise, you've got guys saying, hey, let's add that feature. It'll be easy. And it turns out, you know, it's not easy. And how, you know, how many software developers have that pointy-haired boss Dilbert view of their managers? Oh, you know, and they, and they say to themselves, you know, I could do a better job. It's probably why a lot of developers get into management because, you know, they just see how the non-technical managers, you know, just get eaten alive. Yeah. So I, I guess I've, I've come to have the belief that it is so much easier to teach a developer some things about marketing than it is to teach a marketing guy some things about technology. Huh. And yeah. for that reason, I just, I, I like to write these things basically to help geeks like myself think about strategy and think about you know how to make good product choices and how to how to avoid disasters and things like that so it's been it seems to have been well received cool so uh we were just talking before you uh before we started the show about vista that i have vista on my laptop have you uh taken the plunge installed it i have not installed the uh the final release yet um, I, uh, I spent fair, fair amount of time with the betas and previews and so forth. And, um, you know, I like it. It, uh, at the time I was using it, it wasn't, it wasn't as stable as I'd like. I'm sure it's much better now. Yeah. Um, I, I have a Sony Vio, which means I'm sort of constantly in device driver hell and I'm afraid to install Vista. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even had... machines that aren't so device driver contentious are having challenges. I got to imagine Sony Vios are terrifying right now. Oh gosh, it's. I mean, all their. It's like they had to reinvent every single device in the laptop. You know, it wasn't enough for them to use anything that anyone had ever used. So, mm. I doubt Vista would even install. I can't I, even install XP on it. Wow. Yeah. Well, I have a totally mainstream computer built from the most popular parts of the day, just from a few months ago, and uh, Vista doesn't recognize the USB ports. So, oh, really? Come on. Wow. So, 
Yeah, it's a must be a challenge to have to rewrite drivers for every little thing. Yeah, but I ran uh, on another machine. I ran Vista for uh, for several weeks. You know, my first reaction to the glass and everything was, "Oh, isn't that cute?" And it's really funny. After I mean, I'm sure you know this. After a week or or even less, um, I I really got hooked on it. I mean, the the overall look and feel. Um, it has a niceness to it, sort of a luxury feel to it. And then you take it away and you sort of feel like you're moving from a nice house to an apartment. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I've been using it um, in a in a mainstream way on my laptop for a few weeks. So I've only been playing with Arrow and Glass, like you say, for a few weeks. And I wouldn't go back. I mean, I, I use XP on another machine, and you're right. It does have that feeling of archaicness. Yeah. It's just so nice. Yeah, it's it's just a very pleasant environment. Now, what about WPF? Are you working with this? I am. Um, not in a professional capacity. Source Gear itself hasn't really figured out when we're going to use any of the .NET 3.0 stuff. Yeah. But uh, I have a hobby project I work on quite a bit that uh, that is WPF, uh, and I just love it. It's it's a marvelous API. It has a ton of potential, and, and it, I just don't... I don't think we've seen anywhere near what it's going to do. No, I, I agree. Two years it's, from now, I think it'll be astonishing. Yeah, I mean, even now, you know, what we're seeing is is demo stuff, and some of that demo stuff is astonishing. Yeah, um, the the kinds of things that uh, that people are doing, integrating 3D into their user interface and things like that. Um, some of that stuff is wild. The uh, I'm using it. You know, I'm doing this this woodworking CAD program. And so I'm using the 3D features heavily and I'm using them in actually rather traditional ways. I'm not, I'm not doing bookstores that have 3D views of books and things like that. I'm just, I'm using 3D the way 3D has traditionally been used and it's holding up very well. Hmm. Um, I, you know, frankly, if I had any gripe about WPF, it's that um, I don't have the graphic skills to do WPF apps that look really, really good. Yeah. It's, you know, they've raised the bar on aesthetics is what they've done. And they've made it possible for people like me to work with designers. And, and they've made it possible for us to collaborate and end up with a well-designed app um, that looks really great. The problem is if you have a, you know, by raising that bar, if you don't have that designer hanging around and you don't have the skills to, to do that kind of stuff, it's still perfectly possible to create WPFs that are just butt ugly. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm thinking. We have yet to see the most atrocious app from WPF yet. Oh, I'm oh, sure yeah. it'll be out there. Well, soon. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all the uh, all the window controls in my app are just atrocious. They look like you know, they look like Windows 95 because uh, I haven't figured out how to do the styling and all that cool gradient stuff. The the actual contents of my display windows are amazing just because of, of the 3D features, but Man, yeah, you t- you put up a list box or a button in WPF, and it looks a whole lot like a list box and a button. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. XAML or no XAML, it's still a button. That's right. So, I, you know, I, it's obvious because of Source Gear and and some of your other projects that you work all over the spectrum in terms of platforms. What's been? What, what tell us a little bit about your history of of uh, software development? Just you know, in you know, hundred words or less or whatever. <laughs> hundred words or less, man. I don't know if I can say anything in hundred okay, words. Okay, a less. few hundred words. <laughs> I uh, okay, so I was a Mac guy. I'll, I'll confess. Okay. No kidding. Yeah, I um, I was uh, hired. 
You know, my first couple of jobs were either Mac or, or Unix development. Um, I did basically, I was a guy who did like motif development for money and Mac development for fun. And I, I did not join the windows revolution until, until windows got real pointers. Um, I I wasn't, I, I never dealt with segment addressing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I that's... didn't do any Windows development until um, the Win32 API was starting to come out in beta. Right. So, and in fact, we uh, I was at this company and we, we were hemming and hawing and trying to decide whether to do a Windows version of our product because we were Mac only, Mac and Unix actually. Uh, and we finally decided to... Uh, uh, to make the hire and go for Windows, and we we hired. The, I don't even know if I've ever confessed this to him because he's a good friend and a coworker of mine now. But dun, dun, you know, dun. we called him Windows Weenie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics, and their product is the one that we really love: Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms. Works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. We had all these emails flying around in the discussion phase, like, are we going to hire a Windows weenie? Yeah, yeah, I think we've got to hire a Windows weenie. It just, it just stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then after he, he got hired, we banished the phrase, and we said, we're never going to use that phrase again. Until today. Until today. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the irony was, you know, a year later, I had been converted into uh, um, a Windows weenie, and I was full-time programming on the Win32 API, and I've been a Windows weenie ever since. Now, now this was during your time at Spyglass then? Uh, yeah. Before Spyglass did web browsers, we did scientific uh, data visualization tools. Cool. Yeah. It was fun work, but it was not the kind of work that lo- allows you to make enough money to pay back your venture capitalists. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Which, that's, Again, it's you know, the 90s, so that's what everybody's doing. Oh, yeah. Well, it, this was early 90s. 90, uh, so I joined, man, when did I join? I joined Spyglass in 92. And I spent a couple years hacking on these cool science data tools, which uh, was a ball. I really had a good time. It's just that. Was um, this a Mac? Was this a Mac thing? It was Mac and, uh, and Solaris. Oh. And then, and then some Windows work. You know, the Windows work came in at the end of that period. Huh. And what, what were you using to program Windows at the time? C++? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah all C++. Yep. Um, not even MFC. We did, we, I mean, we did a Windows version of our app, and it was all coded straight on the Win32 API. That was a good learning experience. Sure. You, you know, you mentioned segmenting, and that took me back. That there's, you know, the, I've I've known Mac people and Unix people who have come over to the PC, and they're like, "What's all this segmented memory stuff all about?" 
mm-hmm. yeah, back before we had flat a flat model, and right. primarily because of the constraints of an eight bit operating system. Right. But uh, that's uh, what there's probably a lot of people. I'm just realizing there's probably a lot of listeners who don't know what the hell we're talking about. Segmented memory because it's just a long time ago now. It was a long time ago, and um, basically it comes down to memory addressing when when you go to. You're mentioning pointers. When you go to uh, use pointers, you have to first define the starting point of memory access because the memory address space is so small. You have to first say, I'm defining the segment starting at this physical address, boom, and then all of your memory addresses are offsets from that address. And it can, you know, it's quite a a mathematical monkey wrench to throw in there if you don't have some nice tools to to deal with it. Yeah, the, I mean, this is like the 16-bit Windows days when, yep. um, you know, we we take it all for granted now that a pointer is 32 bits or or even more. Yep. And uh, we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. But and we don't even know what pointers are. Most of our listeners probably. <laughs> <laughs> it was not yeah. the whole point of Visual Basic. It's not a bad thing. Trust me. <laughs> That's true, you know. Now in the, now in the days of CLR, and you know, the need for pointers is less than ever. Right. It gets bad when it's a pointer to a pointer to a pointer to oh, a I've pointer. Had that, yeah. <laughs> right. So you're making scientific graphical controls, and the VCs come along and say, "We're just not going to make enough money on this." Yeah. Yeah, they started pressing us really hard, and I, I shouldn't say us. I was not an executive in that company. I was just a grunt programmer. But right, they come, uh, they come, start fussing at us, and and basically, they were go- they were going to force us to sell out so that they could just get this thing off their portfolio. Right. And right around then, you know, the Mosaic guys at NCSA were just across town, and um, you know we. We took this idea to them and said, hey, what do you think about web browsers? And uh, they went for it. And we, I mean, in a very short time, as quickly as we could, we sold off the science tools and got ourselves into the browser business. Um, and That was uh, a risky proposition back then when it was just Mosaic and Cello and a, that's about it, right, on the on Windows. Oh, it was risky, but the thing is, that's what VCs do. I mean, they, yeah. they, on, they only want high-risk, high-reward investments. And right. What they what they had in their portfolio was a low risk, low reward, profitable investment. Nobody wants that if you're a VC. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they want something to talk about when they you know hang out at the bar after work. That's right. That's right. So it, it ended up being obviously a really good bet. I mean, the company was able to go public. The VCs were happy. Yeah, I'll say. And ultimately, the whole thing acquired by Microsoft. The uh, the browser was the funny thing is that. Um, you know, so our business back in the day was we were licensing browsers on an on an OEM basis to other companies, and we we considered ourselves the uh, we called ourselves the arms dealer for the browser war. <laughs> and what happened? We thought this was going to be a sustainable model, and what happened is that we sold our browser to like 120 companies, and one of those 120 slaughtered the other 119. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we the, basically the day we licensed to Microsoft, it was by far our biggest deal, but it wasn't big enough to sustain the whole company after they killed everybody else. Right. So we ended up having to get out of that business, but um, it was you know, it was still a ball to be involved in. Yeah, and it's uh, that goes back to my initial comment about just 
seeing seeing a need and writing it and uh first of all having the vision to take the risk and to know that it exists to take it and then to execute it well and then to uh, you know sell it to Microsoft i mean all those planets have to align that's not everybody gets to say they can do that well and uh there's there's a lot of things there that i should not be taking credit for and won't either but i learned a lot about vision back then by watching the guys who made the tough decisions you just described cuz yeah. mostly i was just being told what to write code about uh, mm. I did get some uh, nice exposure to working with Microsoft. Um, when we did the licensing deal, I was the primary technical point of contact. Nice. And I, I got sent out to Redmond for a while to work with them, and that was fun, just kind of working on campus as if I were an employee. <laughs> now, um, you transitioned to source gear. How did that work out? Uh, okay, so I told you that Microsoft killed off our browser business. Yeah. Basically, what happened next was the, the management said, all right, we're going to start doing browsers for devices, uh, handhelds and phones and set-top boxes and anything that's not a PC, we want to build the browser for it. And I wasn't interested. Um, that's a long story short. There was lots of soap opera involved. So I take back what I said. I didn't want to do that. I take back what I said about you being a Renaissance man. You clearly missed the boat on that one. <laughs> well, I, I did and I didn't because what <laughs> happened is that I, uh, I quit. I went into business for myself. And um, the next thing that happened is, is Spyglass laid off all my coworkers in the Champagne office. Yeah. And I hired seven of them, and we went into business doing device browsers competing with Spyglass. Oh, okay. And that was the actual initial beginnings of Source Gear. Um, and when, it, when was that day that you said, you know what, this is crazy. Let's do something else. Um, you mean in terms of doing the switching from browsers to something else? Yeah, I mean, at what point do you say, you know, we're we're doing this is this is fruitless. We have to totally change what we're doing. Um. Well, I mean, it's happened several times in my career. I suppose. I mean, we had to get out of the consulting business basically when the bubble burst in about two thousand. Um, right. We were we were doing browsers for companies like Motorola getting paid very, very nicely for it. And then all of a sudden, all the good consulting work dried up. And so that was when we made the decision. We're going to, we had a developer tools business on the side that was, that was coming along nicely. We made a decision that we were going to focus on that exclusively. And, uh, and that's basically how we became the company we are today. We don't, we don't do any consulting work anymore, of course. And we just, we sell developer tools to, to Windows developers. And this, the central product of Source Gear, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's Vault, right? That's right. Yeah. Now that's, that's right. uh, I mean, source code management. Doesn't Microsoft sell stuff like that? Yeah, they do. Um, we uh, we ended up in a real sweet spot of the industry, though. I mean, it's one of those things that's very rare. We were selling this tool called Source Offsite, which is a remote access solution for SourceSafe, and. And that came about because when Gates had his big meeting where he called everybody into the in in the company and said, "Internet enable your product," the yeah. SourceSafe team apparently didn't show up. Oh, yeah. So for the longest time, using SourceSafe over the internet was darn near impossible. I mean, the, they would recommend remote access services and things like that, which were all terrible solutions. So we built this add-on product and uh, and started selling it, and it did surprisingly well. And so that was uh, source off site and it's that an was extension source for source safe. 
And we kept doing that for so long. We always thought it was a short-term business. We always thought, you know, this product is going to die because Microsoft will just add remote access to SourceSafe and the whole business will go away. Well, they sort of neglected SourceSafe in a number of ways, not just oh, remote yeah. access. I mean, that that was a nice little opportunity for for anybody. That's yeah. right. So, we, I mean, they, they actually neglected SourceSafe for so long. Um, our customers actually started telling us, why don't you just build your own source control tool? I mean, why why are you still riding on SourceSafe when it's obvious that they're not going to do anything with this of value? So finally, we did it. We just said, okay, well, let's build a tool that is designed specifically for people who use SourceSafe but hate it. And, it's, it's, <laughs> and you know, I this isn't a plug, you know, an outright plug, but I have lots of people in the business. I know lots of people in the business, and I know of quite a few who use it, who use Vault. And they have nothing but good stuff to say about it. Well, it, it, it certainly is a product that I think we're proud of. Um, but it's it's one of those things where, I mean, how often do you get the kind of opportunity we had where you, what you have is the most widely used version control system on the planet was yep. SourceSafe. And it was the most widely hated version control system right. on the planet. It's very unique. <laughs> People, the products that are hated usually don't have market share. Yeah, you'd think, but they get into that situation. And I'm betting that then when you built Vault, you focused on how do I migrate from SourceSafe totally painlessly. Absolutely. And the response in terms of Vault success turned out to be shocking. It was a great deal more successful than we ever thought it would be because I guess we just underestimated how much people hate SourceSafe. <laughs> Yeah. So and then it, the, the third part of product in this triad is Dragnet. Uh, yes, um, Dragnet is a bug tracking system. Uh, it's not a particularly impressive bug tracking system, but our customers like it. It's uh, it's not you know it's not a product that we feel like is going to take over the world. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's I like the browsers for, for devices plan. That would that was a you know, you missed an opportunity there, man. Yeah, it's just that, man, there were 50 companies chasing that. And it's not its not a guarantee we would have been the one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Dragnet is, is actually going to, uh, uh, it's going to change face over here in, in 2007 quite a bit as we, as we get it much more deeply integrated with, uh, uh, with Vault. Uh, and that, and that is in some sense a reaction to what Team System is doing. Um, I don't, you know, if you look at uh, Team Foundation Server and what what Microsoft has done with Visual Studio Team System, um, I think they're going to change the landscape somewhat in terms of people are going to stop thinking about source control and bug tracking as separate things. Right. By and right. large, these things want to be integrated, not not integrated as two apps that just touch each other, but integrated as two apps that are in bed with each other and they're the same app. Yeah. yeah, and I got to imagine Team System is what's going to keep you up at night now. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it, the uh, it definitely has impacted our business in in some negative ways, but it's also impacted us in positive ways too. Because um, in competitively, it's just so much more expensive and so much more complicated that it doesn't really hurt Vault very much. Right. I also got to I also got to think that your customers, you know, changing source. Uh, version control software and things like this. this isn't something that you just do. Oh, that's right. You know, it's you got to have customers who want to stay with you. Uh, you know, it's not a, a trivial task to switch. 
no, it's it's not something that people want to do. Um, which of course is you know it affects us on both sides. I mean, when we try and get somebody to switch to Vault, they don't want to switch. Right. And when somebody tries to get people to switch away from Vault, they don't want to switch. So, yeah. version control customers are very sticky. Yeah, once you've got them, you can keep them, but the challenge right. is getting them in the first place. And you certainly had that opportunity, so that there you go. Yeah. Are you, did did it impact your the the number of new customers that you get? Not really. It, it certainly has. I mean, some of the the top end customers um, are choosing Team System instead of Vault. There's no question about that, because Team System was designed for much much larger teams than Vault was. And we just tell them that if somebody comes and says, "Hey, you know, we need version control for our team of two thousand developers. You know, can you help us?" And we say, "Well, no. Uh, our our product works great. You know, from from uh, one all the way up to about five hundred developers, and anything beyond that, you probably have needs. You need to talk to Rational or Microsoft or somebody mm-hmm. somebody focused on enterprise. And you also have the budget for it too. That's right. That's right. I mean, those tools are expensive. Yes, for a reason. And it, it, does it work on multiple platforms? Team system or Vault? No, Vault. Um, Vault does not right now, but that's one of the big changes we're making in 2007. Ah, is, there you go. Is we need this product to be cross-platform, and the you next probably, release will be. Probably had quite a few requests for that. Yeah, quite a few. Yeah. We have a, we have sort of a Band-Aid cross-platform solution that I don't talk about much. I mean, if you really need to get your code from a Mac box or a Solaris box, what you can do is you can run our command line client on mono, and it works very, very well. But that's right. not what people want. So no, that's that's a kind of a challenging way to do things. Yeah, and it seems to me. I mean, I'm just looking on your website. The uh, the Vault uh, Dragnet package per user of three hundred fifty dollars. That's pretty inexpensive, especially compared to something like Team System. Well, yeah, we've tried to keep the price uh, you know as low as we can, and and still have it make sense for everybody. Um, I don't know if we've said this too, but uh, Vault is a a .NET application, right? That's right. It's written entirely in C sharp. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, well, it has been. We we uh, it was a little bit of a gamble for us back when we did it because we started building this when uh, .NET was at beta two. Wow. And uh, I was I have to admit I was very skeptical. Um, C sharp and .NET won me over in a big way, but I came in. Um, convinced that this would would blow up and be a disaster. And I I think the reason is because in my first presentation on C Sharp, I looked at it and I realized immediately, this is this is Java except done better. Yeah. Right. But but my experiences with Java had been so negative that I couldn't get past that. So I I honestly expected it would fail. I mean like we're gonna launch this app and I'm gonna be able to I'm gonna be able to watch the garbage collector run while the app freezes for three seconds every (laughs) five minutes, you know. I remember back in the early days of .NET when people were talking about exactly that, and my favorite line was, okay, so you put lipstick on the pig. Yeah. It's still a pig. <laughs> still a pig, right. That's right. It, it turns out it's not a pig. No. Um, yeah. It, they've done an amazing job, in, in my opinion. And 2.0 only got better. Yeah, it really did. I, I already can't, can't remember what life was like not having generics. And I bet, yeah. And I bet you're planning on doing some nice stuff with uh, WCF. Uh, I think we will. It's uh, it's not something that we're jumping on right now, but um, certainly the 3.0 framework has some nice stuff for us to look at. Yeah, lots of opportunities for connection points and things. Definitely. Sure. Now, you've been involved in .NET since the very beginning, so you have, must have always dealt with 
the pain of framework deployment. Um, ah, good we, one. We got a little bit of a free pass on that because we sell to developers, not normal people. Right, right. And developers in general already have the framework on their machine. And and they're not afraid to put it on if they don't. That's right. And also it, generally know how to do it. Yeah, it's not scary. I mean, it, particularly when most of our customers are Visual Studio users, if you're if you're a Visual Studio.net user, you obviously have the framework already. So right. it, it has largely been a non-issue. Hmm. I know for for other companies, I mean, if you're trying to sell to normal people, if you're trying to put products on the shelf at Best Buy or something like that, framework deployment is a huge problem. Yeah. Um, especially for a, you know, a downloadable app. But it, we, we've, uh, we've avoided that. Yeah, I, I get it. You know, when you're developer tools, different story for the framework. That's right. Yeah. Um, hey, you have something in your notes here about Code Project. You're, you're not involved with CodeProject.com at all, are you? No, I'm not. I, I just great site, um, by the way. Love it is it. a great site. Um, I, I've uh, I don't remember when I joined the site. It was ages ago, um, back when they only had like several hundred thousand users instead of almost four million. Yeah, <laughs> it is kind of spooky to think three point seven million users. I'm betting on some duplicates. Well, it's just bizarre. I mean, if you think about how many developers there are on the planet. Hmm. Sometime in the next few years, Code Project is going to have more members than there are developers. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't mean any criticism. Like, I mean, Jeff Hadfield, from formerly of Fawcett, is kind of a buddy of mine, and I guess he joined up with Code Project. And I need to ask him at the, this next time I see him because it's like, how do you have 3.7 million developers? <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great site. There's no question about that. You uh, you also mentioned uh, Charles Petzold. Yeah, um, his, are, are you are you a big fan? Are you friends? Well, I am a fan. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say we're friends, but I wouldn't say we're enemies. And yeah, um, I have received personal email from Charles Petzold. That's like you know personal email from Brad Pitt, if you ask me. I mean, it's, yeah, no, he is the guy. Yeah, he is the guy. But uh, he's doing he's working on this WPF 3D book, which I'm really excited about. Um, it's uh, all the WPF books right now have skipped the 3D features, and that's really all I use mostly is is the 3D stuff. So somebody needed to do a book on it and do it well, and uh, it looks like he's going to do a great job. I even I dropped him an email and asked if I would ha- if I could help, and he sent back and said, "Well, no." But <laughs> <laughs> thanks anyway. Yeah, I, you know it's, it's funny kind of what I do. <laughs> it's funny to hear him focused on WPF when you always think of him as an early Windows guy. Oh yeah. Yeah, but he was the only guy writing about the, the 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 visual API, you know, the GDI stuff in any meaningful way back in the day. And you know, that that's UI, that's the majority of what Windows was all about. Yeah. So he really well, is writing the same story again just the new generation. Yeah, I learned bitmap processing from reading his book and I was writing it in VB1. You know. Yeah. So well, I learned message loops and you know all the all the basics of win32 programming at you know for windows and high words and low words and all that kind of stuff i mean he uh, yeah. i mean he taught a whole generation of programmers how he to really do did that. yeah and uh we we talked to him back in the early days of .net rocks and and uh i remember he brought up his interest in analog computers have you have you talked to him about this or do you know <laughs> I have not, but I know he has a lot of very interesting interests. 
Yeah, and somebody wrote an email like, analog computers, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Back in the day. Yeah. I like reading his blog just because you never know whether you're going to get some juicy little nugget about WPF3D or some very insightful remark about classical music. It's Right. You know, <laughs> he, he's just smart and he, he knows all kinds of stuff. Very yeah. renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of WPF, you're a little annoyed that it doesn't include, uh, that WPFE everywhere doesn't include 3D? Yeah, I'm more than a little annoyed, actually. Um, Extremely pissed, maybe? (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't think anything's going to change just because I'm pissed off. Well, would it still be slash E if it had 3D support? Well, I don't know. I just know that W, I mean, at a very high level, WPFE is for, you know, for people who want to do browser apps um, in the WPF way that can be cross-platform. Fine. Well, it just so happens that my browser app wants to be cross-platform too, and it wants to be use some 3D features. And I would even live with a basic set of 3D features, but in terms, it looks like I'm getting none. <laughs> and I understand all the reasons for that. That doesn't make me happy about it. I'm just fussing. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I know where you're coming from. That still doesn't make it right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> We've talked uh, quite a bit on this show about, you know, what developers are thinking about the next generation of software development, the next generation of languages, dynamic languages seem to have a lot uh, a hold on people. And as far as methodologies, agile is sort of the up and coming thing. Uh, you have some very strong opinions on both of these topics. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, in terms of up, what's up and coming and what's hot, um, I okay so on dynamic languages I think dynamic languages are interesting I'd have to call them overrated I but they're mm. interesting mm. Um I don't see a lot of serious projects getting done with them I, I guess that's you know when it comes right down to it people write you know most of the projects of the world are getting written in languages like Java C sharp C is still you know C and C++ are still very widely used you know languages that have types um, yeah, it's and I I like Python as much as the next guy. I I have written a ton of Python code and I think it's a ball. And I don't dispute that you're incredibly productive when you work on it. But all my Python code in general has been written just for me. Yeah, um, I I think Python and, and its ilk um, tend to break down a little bit when you try and put 500 people on a project. Well, it's mm. very much write only code, isn't it? Well, I mean, Python isn't so bad, but I mean, Perl, good grief. Oh, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's right only. Well, code. Ruby's certainly readable. I mean, it's more VB-like than most things. I, I wouldn't know. I haven't looked at it. I'm, a, I'm completely clueless on Ruby. And the reason why is because somebody one day told me that it was a little bit like Perl, and I was like, yeah. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> no, it's, a, it's sort of a cross between VB and Perl, and VB for readability it truly has been denoised, you know. Pearl, to me, looks like a cartoon character swearing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Ruby is not that. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Maybe I'll give it another look. Although, can I run it on the CLR yet? Actually, yes. Uh, John Lamb, who was from Wintelect and then did his own thing, has written a Ruby CLR uh, bridge. So you can access the entire framework from Ruby oh, with cool. Ruby CLR. In fact... 
We have a DNR TV show coming up with Venkat uh, Subramaniam on this very topic. Good. If it's not already published, dnrtv.com. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, I, I mean, I have nothing against Ruby. It's just that I'm probably not going to learn anything that isn't on the CLR at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. De- definitely a believer then. Yeah, well, I, think, I am. I it's, think what most people like about Ruby is not that, hey, let's switch, you know, but but that it, it offers some interesting ideas. And, and you can certainly see the C-sharp team uh, and even the VB team picking up on some of those things. You yeah. Know, and the .NET language is getting slowly more and more dynamic. So, Eric, what's your relationship to Team Prize? Team Prize? Yeah, I was um, going to ask you that, too. Team Prize is, you know, it's a division of Source Gear. Or sometimes I call it a sister company. Um, it, uh, you know, so Team Prize and us, we share office space. Um, I am an owner of Source Gear, therefore I am an owner of Team Prize, but the fact is I don't really have any involvement in it. Um, the guy who runs that division, I know him, I talk to him. <laughs> well, let's tell the, let's tell the folks what it is. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Team Prize is basically, uh, cross-platform clients for Visual Studio Team System. Um, and so if you want to use Visual Studio Team System or, you know, if you want to access Team Foundation Server from a Mac or a Solaris box or even an AIX box or, or with Eclipse integration or anything like that, um, what we're, uh, what we're offering is clients that do all those kinds of things. Um, so, and it, it turns out, uh, there's quite a bit of demand for that actually because, um, people, People who use high-end enterprise version control tools need, almost always have multiple platforms. So. Absolutely. I mean, Eclipse is the definitive development environment outside of the Microsoft space. Absolutely. So any That's place right. where I'm going to be able to have a serious Team Foundation server installation, i got a bunch of Eclipse users out there. Yep. So this That's is right. the solution. Yeah, and uh, it's, uh, it's at version 2.0 now. I guess we've been doing this for, man... Seems like it's our new thing, and we've been doing it well over a year now. Yeah, well, hmm. it, it, I mean, it shipped. Uh, Studio shipped in November two thousand five. Foundation server shipped a little bit later, but it's been a year. Yeah, yeah, it has. That's right, because Foundation server I think shipped in like March of '06. Yeah, and uh, we shipped Team Prize, uh, you know, pretty much the next day. I think it was. And <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been it's been over a year now. Now, the second part of my questionnaire was about Agile uh, development yeah. methodologies. Um, what's been your experience with, well, with methodologies in general and uh, how, you, how you write code and how you work in teams? So my thing, the thing I have about Agile, well, first of all, on methodologies, um, I've never found a methodology I like. I just haven't. Um, I all the rigorous methodologies just scare me to death. You're too creative. You're a right well, brain guy. Maybe I am. I don't know. I mean, I, I bought a book on RUP and I, I just couldn't stop laughing after I bought it. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. It's on my shelf over there. <laughs> Your reaction is basically, yeah, right. Well, I mean, it's a 400 page book. And the first yeah. thing it says is that this is just a brief summary of RUP. We don't have, we don't have room here oh, to cover God. the whole thing. So we're just going to cover the essentials. I'm like, this is 400 pages. Shut up and write some code. <laughs> How big is the, <laughs> I, mean, I was just speechless. So, um, Agile, on the other hand, um, is filled, all the stuff about Agile is filled with principles that I think sound great. The, uh, 
the principles of Agile all make such good sense to me. Um, the values that are on the Agile manifesto and things like that. Um, the problem is that um, it, it just seems to get overdone. I, I think the problem with Agile is the same thing as is my problem with religion. And that is that when I hear spiritual concepts, when I hear Zen Buddhism, when I hear uh, the teachings of Jesus and the great prophets and all these other guys, I, I mean, I hear great stuff. And then when I go into a church, it's also disappointing because I mean, because church is very is just messed up, and I think the same thing happens with agile. Is they take these great principles, and sometimes you just go overboard, and all of a sudden you find yourself um, singing hymns. And, and uh, it's a common <laughs> theme over that comes up in conversations that I have with people over and over and over again is that the simplest and most elegant ideas always get distorted, screwed up when they become institutionalized. Yeah, you know. When, because yeah. everybody tries to own it, everybody tries to put their spin on it, and yeah. that's what's happened. That's what happened to the to uh, you know good bands that you like. Like back in the, now you probably remember in the earliest days of in Seattle of uh, Nirvana playing out in bars and people sort of checking them out as this new thing that was kind of cool because it was unknown. And then of course they get huge and start the grunge movement and. Now everybody wants to do that, and the whole idea is to be small and unheard of. <laughs> yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, Agile's not the first thing that you could say was really good until it was popular. Yeah. Uh, lots of bands and movies have been like that too. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> if I hear "Tears in Heaven" one more time, Eric Clapton, <laughs> I'm going to shoot somebody. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But yeah, you know, I don't want anybody to think I'm against Agile or its principles because I'm not. I just yeah, you know, sometimes well, and you're definitely who... involved in the tools that will help facilitate it one way or the other. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So uh, I want to talk about micro ISVs, but maybe we should back into it a little a bit. I mean, ISV is independent software vendor of which you are, yeah, and yeah. Source Gear is right, but it, that's not a micro ISV. I mean, you're a bigger company than that. I don't know how many people actually work for Source Gear. Uh, about twenty nine. That's a nice size. You, know, yeah. you can still get everybody around a, uh, at, at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can have pizza lunch together if we we'll, if we'll crowd in. Yeah, but then uh, but the micro ISV, which according to Wikipedia, so it must be true, you coined the term. Uh, that's right. I, I did. Um, I uh, I was writing a, a column for uh, MSDN's website at the time. And I wanted to do a column about really, really small software product companies. And at the time, I was calling a micro ISV a one-person company. And I kept running across these one-person companies, and I found them interesting. Um, these, uh, these guys who were so much more successful than anybody thought they were. You know, there's a guy, uh, Thomas Warfield, is selling a product called Pretty Good Solitaire. He's, he's actually in central Illinois, so I've met him once uh, and it's amazing. I mean, the guy's selling a solitaire game. Solitaire comes with every single Windows installation, and he's selling them, and he's making good money. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's spooky how much money this guy makes. Over solitaire. Of course, the name that sprung to my mind when you said about the concept of micro ISV is Nick Bradbury. Oh, yeah. He he's was one of, my, guy. one of my examples as well. Um, very successful guy. Um, another perfect example. I mean... As I started to run across these guys, Nick Bradbury and Thomas Warfield and these others, 
uh, I just got interested in writing about them. I figured, you know, they need some press because the the press, you know, all gets written about venture capital funded companies like, you know, Dig and Reddit and Amazon. And you know, <laughs> um, the fact is there's, there's some of these guys are and gals um, are building products in their basement and selling them and making a great living that is very compatible with their lifestyle. And so I, I want to talk about them. And in the context of writing that article, I needed a name for these kind of companies. I said, well, what am I going to call them? And I had some other name. I don't remember what it was, but at the last minute, the day I submitted it to my editor, I was like, you know, I don't like that name. I'm going to call it Micro ISV. So I I did a search and replace and sent it off. (laughs) 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 And that is how the term got coined. Wow. Now, you hadn't been stewing on it or anything. It just sort of came to you. No, I did Whatever I honestly don't remember what the other name was, but whatever it was, I didn't like it. <laughs> right. I needed a I needed a term for really really small software companies. But um, you know, it's funny how much we we're all the three of us are all old time computer guys, and we remember Apple and all of those sorts of things, and we uh, remember the days of in the garage building software and building equipment and so forth, and tend to talk about it like it's gone. You know, these days, generally speaking, video games are built by teams of hundreds of people. And here you are talking about one guy can still make a living, actually a pretty darn good living, writing software in his basement. That's right. I don't think those days are gone. I just think they don't get talked about enough. You know, Scott Hanselman interviewed Leon Bambrick, who's the uh, time snapper guy. Yeah. About starting your own micro ISV on Hansel Minutes, which is at HanselMinutes.com just a few weeks ago. And right. that was that was very well received. So Yeah, I yeah, heard uh, I heard it. some of that podcast as well. Um and uh I was I was glad to hear glad to hear them talking about it because uh, he's got a nice little company there. Yeah. And it is certainly possible. You just gotta come up with the right idea and be serious. I mean there's just gotta be a common element about these micro ISVs. You talk about it a bit in your blog on how Actually, they seem very balanced, that they're working this way because they like living like that. But there must, there's got to be a certain level of skill there to be able to operate a business as a one-man band successfully. Well, certainly, it requires that you you be able to do everything that has to be done, at least competently. I mean, it, it's a jack-of-all-trades job. There's no question. you got to be able to write code. you got to be able to... Uh, build a website you got to be able to keep your checkbook balanced um, you got to be able to uh, do all the little things that uh, that keep a company going and you got to be able to make good product decisions on the marketing side right the, the best decision I ever made was to hire somebody to handle the the, the financial and the, the business business end of uh, of the business you know just sort of the day-to-day stuff bookkeeping etc because if I did it I'd be in jail right now but did you do it from day one? <laughs> I started doing it, and I said, you know what? I This is not what I do. I have right. to hire some. And it, as soon as I had enough revenue from what I was doing to, to hire somebody, I did. That was the first thing I did. And, man, that was the best decision I ever made. Well, and I fully agree. Um, but uh, But in that time before you had enough revenue to do it, you had to do it yourself. Sure did. And you didn't screw it up. I, I almost did. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I almost did. I I, yeah. I had my stress level was very 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 high because you know it comes the end of the year and you pull out turbo TurboTax and then you pull out your hair. 
you know? <laughs> yep. It's just, you know, you know, I'm not used to doing that stuff, so I don't do it well. Well, and I've always made a living as a consultant, and I find it hypocritical to go around saying, hey, you should be hiring me because I'm an expert in this, and then myself not hire experts in those things, like a lawyer and an insurance guy and a, an accountant and so forth. Yeah, that's true. So what would you say to somebody who's, you, somebody, maybe a friend of yours who's a smart developer or something who comes up to you and says, I'm thinking of writing a book. Oh, um, I would say, why? Because <laughs> you have a book, right? Well, I mean, the business of software? I do. Well, and if the answer is, well, because I want to get my name out there. Well, then I would say write the book and have fun. Um, that's That's why I did it. I wrote a book because I wanted to see my um, my name on a book on the shelf at Borders. Yeah, right. That's a thrill. It is, and uh, and I did, and it was all rather anticlimactic when it happened. And now every time I go to Borders, I go back to the computer section and see if my book is uh, still around, and it still is. And, and if you, especially if you're with somebody, it's damn impressive. Oh yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, unless but, it's your uh, spouse. Yeah, then it's, it's like, come on. Yeah, yeah, you got 10 of those on your <laughs> shelf. Can we go somewhere now? <laughs> you know, the worst part was when I, um, you know, when I showed my daughter, you know, I took them in and said, hey, this is daddy's book on the shel- uh, shelf at Borders. And they were like, can we go to the kids section now? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they're, cons- you know, then they're amazed that everybody else's father doesn't have a book at Borders, you know. <laughs> That's yeah, what dads well. have, right? No, okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I've written two books, and that was enough. And every once in a while, somebody tries to recruit me to be a part of another one, and, and I just can't do it anymore. So, Well, I'm working on another one now. Um, I don't think I have five more in me, but um, I think I want to try another one. But there again, you know, I'm not doing it for the money. It's um, Everyone said... You know, you don't make money on books, and I, I I knew it going in, and at the same time, I was just stunned how little money there is in books. Yeah, it's tough. What is the name of your book again? Uh, the book is entitled Eric Sink on the Business of Software. All right. It's an A-Press book. It is. It's an A-Press book. It is a collection of, uh, of blog entries um, that I have written. They've all been... Uh, edited lightly and then I wrote introductions and tied them all together to try and make it a cohesive uh, book but you know bottom line is it is a collection of articles um but it you know it seems to be done right reasonably well it's not a hit but it's, it does uh, sound like fodder for somebody thinking about becoming a micro ISV I, I get a lot of feedback from people who are in fact doing that saying that uh, they really enjoyed the book um Bob Walsh has got a book called Micro ISV from Vision to Reality and a lot of people who are trying to start their own thing are reading both our books, and and it, it, his book is very different from mine. So, you know, you read the two together, and uh, hopefully you avoid a lot of the mistakes that people make. And hey, Amazon.com is offering both of them together. Yeah, they usually do the pairing just because the books have, you know, so much connection to each other. Yeah, which is a good thing, really. So, so listeners, yeah. do Eric a favor and go buy his books. Buy them both together, and maybe someday he'll be the software legend that he is not today. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I think it's more of do yourself a favor. If this is where you want to go, <laughs> go get the best information you can lay your hands on. Amen. And on a lighter note, uh, 
Where did you get your Wii, and how much did you pay for it, sir? Oh, the uh, actually, the story of buying my Wii is on uh, on my blog, because I oh, bought no. it in a dark alley at night. Um, <laughs> literally? Yeah, I, I literally did. <laughs> uh, Do you still a, have both of your kidneys? This is what I want to know. It was hilarious. I mean, the truth is, the guy who was selling it to me was probably just scared I was going to rip him off, but he brought this big friend of his with him. And <laughs> Great. <laughs> anyway, I paid uh I paid a hundred dollars over retail. Oh, all right. It's not bad. So it wasn't too bad. I was in a big hurry to get one. I wanted it for Christmas. Every, though everyone thinks I got it for my kids, it's really behind. <laughs> yeah. And are you using it? Yeah. I um Dumb I, question, uh, but I mean the most popular gaming console. Oh yeah, I play it quite a bit. I, I'm kinda hooked on the golf game. Um Hmm. And uh, I, whenever I break my high score, I bring in a photo so I can prove it to the guys at work and stuff like that. I've turned into sort of a <laughs> a wee monster, I guess. But, I think by now sort of the uh, supply has caught up with demand, hasn't it? Uh, no. To, to to this day, I have never seen a wee on the shelf at a store. Really? I don't know if you have, but I never have. In huh. fact, you know, here in Champaign, the stories are still told every weekend about people waiting in line to get one. Still. It's crazy. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Fun console. Well, uh, we're sort of coming to the end of the show here. Is there uh should we ask him the question, Richard? Yeah, I think you should ask him the question. All right. What so question? so there's a question that we've historically asked some uh some of our guests and I guess we sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But but anyway, here it is. So, if you had to pick one thing that you've seen lately either online or maybe it's a toy you've bought or or something you've downloaded, or a gadget, or something besides what we've anything we've talked about, and something that you don't sell also is preferable. Um, what would it be? Pick one thing to to so like to use. Coolest thing you've seen lately. Coolest thing I've seen lately. Oh man, that's a tough question. Um, well, you know, one thing that I think is intensely cool that we haven't talked about here is testdriven.net. Oh, okay. Uh, Jamie Cansdale's uh, add-in for Visual Studio is just awesome. Um, I don't know, you know, off the top, off, off the cuff, and on short notice, I don't know if it would be the one thing, but it was one of the first things that came to mind. I use it okay. all the time. All right, tell us just a little bit about it. Is it sort of like a end unit kind of thing, or? Um, yeah, it's what it is. It's uh, it integrates with Visual Studio, and it basically let, provides a bridge from Visual Studio to NUnit and NCover, the code coverage tool, um, uh-huh. and probably two other things I'm forgetting. Um, and I'm probably mischaracterizing his product right now, but the fact is I like it. <laughs> okay. uh, so you, basically I can right-click on my solution and say run my unit tests, and they run right there in Visual Studio. Hmm. Um, it just it kind of improves the overall integration of the uh, of those open source tools with uh, with the Visual Studio environment. So it's just very convenient. This is really interesting, Richard, because we just interviewed Billy Hollis, who is seems like a very right brain guy, kind of like Eric here, in that he's all about getting the software done, doing it right, doing it well, and not having to write a lot of code. Um, Eric seems to be a little bit m- more uh, conservative in terms of the amount of code you write. So, so Billy was like totally against test-driven development just because it adds so much more complexity and so much, so many more lines of code and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you don't, you don't see it that way. You see test-driven development as something that is absolutely necessary going forward. Well, I think it's important. Um, I, 
you know, I don't think I use test-driven development per se enough to really brag about it because um, sometimes I don't write my tests first. So, oh, okay. Um, you know, sometimes I, I use Jamie Cansdale's tool, which is called testdriven.net, but sometimes I don't, I don't always use it in a truly test-driven way. I see. Sometimes I just use it because it's great integration. Yeah. So, you, um, so you'll take your code and say, here, build some tests around this. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I do that. And then it, sometimes the test-driven model works great for me where I sit down and say, all right, I, I don't know how I'm going to write my code, but I know what I want it to do, and right. so here's the test. And I think that methodology works great, too. It's just, I, I, in everything about software development, I like a sense of balance. So. And are we looking at a hmm. micro-ISV here at testdriven.net? I, I believe Jamie Cansdale is trying to make a go of it as a business right now. I, I don't, um, if you haven't had him on your show, he'd be a great Great choice of a guest. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think so. Sure. And I, I don't know what his situation is uh, in terms of uh, you know how how it's all going for him, but I believe a few months ago he started to uh, to uh, charge for commercial versions of this tool and stuff like that. And I think hmm. I think it's going okay. Yeah, that's cool. that's what's at the site. And you know, it's funny. I was looking around this site just as you were talking about it and thinking this looks an awful lot like Source Gear. Yeah, <laughs> like not the, that. He, he seems like he's modeling his business after you. I know you're a fan, but I suspect he's a fan too. Well, we we've talked quite a bit. I don't I don't know if he's modeling after Source Gear by any means, but uh, we've talked a lot. I know he's got my book, and you know we've had yeah. a lot of good discussions about what he's up to. Very cool. Well, uh, is there anything uh, up and coming in your life that you want to plug before we pull the switch? Um, I don't think so. I mean, man, we've talked talked about my stuff and my products a lot more than uh, I might have expected. But uh, <laughs> what's your new book about? Uh, source control. Ah. Uh, Want to do a book about? Uh, in fact, uh, it's a book in progress. I've been writing this thing I call Source Control How to, and a lot of it's on my blog already. Uh, getting it in book form is just a matter of taking it to the next level and getting it in, in book form. So. And as you say in your notes here, the Shrinkster URL to your uh, the Shrinkster link for your blog is LNU, LNU. So Shrinkster.com slash LNU will take you to Eric Sink's blog. Eric, thank you very much. This has been an enlightening hour for thank us and I'm sure the listeners. Thanks again. I've had a great time. All right, and uh, we'll see you next week on Dot .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy, I feel-